This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio, and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is Genesis, exploring the original series Bible part two, because one episode wasn't enough to contain the excitement. <laughs> Captain's log, stardate 1513.1. Our position, orbiting planet M113. On board the Enterprise... Mr. Spock, temporarily in command. On the planet, the ruins of an ancient and long-dead civilization. Ship Surgeon McCoy and myself are now beaming down to the planet's surface. Our mission, routine medical examination of archaeologist Robert Crater and his wife Nancy. Routine, but for the fact that Nancy Crater is that one woman in Dr. McCoy's past. Pick some flowers, Doctor? When a man visits an old girlfriend, she usually expects something like that. Is that how you get girls to like you? By bribing them. 
Doesn't seem to be anybody around, does it? Well, he'll be along. You rushed us down ten minutes early. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. And returning to join us for uh, the second part of a two parts, very special episode. We think is, it's two uh, parts. It could be three. It's probably two. We don't know. It's uh, Ashley Edward Miller, the showrunner of uh, Netflix hit show Dota Dragon's Blood, and also um, a writer producer for such shows as Fringe, Black Sails, and um, uh, uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Welcome back. Newly minted Trexpert extraordinaire, Ashley Edward Miller. It is so great to be back on this podcast that is not a totally different podcast. <laughs> I, I'm really enjoying this deep dive. I'm going to miss these uh, Me too. Star Trek Bible episodes. This God, really somebody should make more Star Trek series just so we could talk about their butt. No. No, that's okay. No. But I, I've really enjoyed the, doing the uh, the Bibles on all these shows. And, and you know, it's, I'm so, it's so great that we saved the... Uh, well, let's let's call it like we see it the best one for last. That's right. You know, the yeah. best the best Star Trek, the original series, and the best Bible <laughs> as well. Don't um, ask uh, la biblioteca. <laughs> the old voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? The old testament, the ones who made us. <laughs> Montreal as large. Um and before we get back into it, I, we got a little housekeeping as always at the top of the show. And I want to thank our listener Jeff G. Uh, who recently uh, reached out to us via Twitter. Um, and Jeff, of course, um, pointed out how much he enjoyed listening to the Assignment Earth episodes of The Briefing Room, an entirely different podcast. Um, <laughs> he didn't say that. I added that. Um, he said that uh, he's been listening since COVID hit and really enjoying the podcast. And he said that I believe uh, you had mentioned um, that had TOS been canceled after Assignment Earth at the end of the second season, I, it would have been uh, a backdoor pilot as a series finale. He said it reminded him of two other series whose final episodes were backdoor pilots, which I don't think any of us really thought of. And uh, neither one was picked up. And those shows are anyone want to hazard a guess what those two shows were? Um, I, I won't guess because you mentioned it before we started recording. So that's right. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm, revealing, I'm revealing a little bit of the man behind the curtain and here, but flipper. <laughs> that's so funny because I was going to say it's not flipper. I'll give flipper you a, is like actually the backdoor pilot was day of the dolphin. That's How right. awesome would that be, by the way? Oh, wow, my. Wow, that's so just I don't know if you read the, the Mike Nichols Mike biography. Nichols book, he talks yeah. about, they talk about it and not in very pleasant uh, circumstances. Not, Dolphins not, are not, awful. Not, to a work good ex, with. not a good experience a for good Mike experience. Nichols. And it was a really weird choice for him to choose to do that movie. I um, actually like that. <laughs> Me too. too. Yeah. Save it for the 430 movie. Okay, That's right. fine. Okay. Which is coming back uh before the end of the year. So damn right it is. Um let's just say we have many things to be thankful thankful for. 
Okay. Also, uh, don't forget the end of the at the end of the year, you can look forward to an all new holiday Trexpert countdown. Trextravaganza. Trextravaganza. I can't yeah, right. say. That's right. We're going to promise right. you three episodes. We're going to give you six. And and, and 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 while we're at it, I want to wish a very happy birthday to uh, Jeff Bond, who will be celebrating his 475th birthday right. uh, this week, and he looks amazing. So, uh, Requiem congratulations for a Methuselah Bond. I mean, he literally, he isn't he, he, he is, he's Flint, isn't he? He is Flint. I yeah. was previously Leonardo, Di, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I was also, I don't recognize this music of Jerry Goldsmith written in his own hand. <laughs> okay. So, um, yes, the, so that's the, the, the two, the two backdoor pilots, one was Quincy. Quincy? Remember Quincy? The, the, yeah, um, Jack Klugman was on the mystery movie. Uh, but then it became a series on NBC uh, after the mystery movie. It was a one hour show. A uh, wonderful show. I actually enjoyed Great it. Show. I love Quincy. Is that a corner? You know who created Quincy? Glenn yeah. Larson, although oh, he had nothing to do with the show. Glenn Larson created everything. Short yeah. of uh, short of the Earth, I think Glenn Larson well, pretty much created, and he may have created the Earth for all we know. Look, there are those who believe <laughs> that life here began out there with, <laughs> with Quincy, uh, tribes of Patrick Mackney. Patrick okay. Mackney. So Jack Klugman was the only regular cast member to appear, according mm-hmm. to IMDb. The Cutting Edge would have been about a revolutionary new clinic. It sounds like Barry Newman's character would have been the lead in the proposed series. I don't know if they knew this was the last Quincy episode when it was filmed, since five other regulars did not appear in the series finale. That's wow. interesting, Jeff. Now, the other one was Barnaby Jones, not to be confused oh. with Barbary Coast, the Shatner show. Right. Um, Which I vaguely recall this episode of Barnaby, Barnaby Jones. Jones. Well, I will read you Jeff's description. Okay. It was the other series that ended with a backdoor pilot that didn't get picked up. It would have been about a father-son detective team headed by Kenneth Mars, Buddy Epson and Mark Shearer made token appearances. Lee Merriweather was the focus of this episode. I would have watched it. Uh, While I watched Quincy during its initial run, I did not see the series finale until MeTV ran it a few years ago. I never watched Barnaby Jones until MeTV started running it in the middle of the night. This gave me a chance to record each episode. Seeing some of the guest stars can be as interesting as some of the plots. Last week, an episode with Susan Oliver ran. So I recorded and watched it again and again. I of found course, it fascinating. So that's from Jeff Golden in New you know Jersey, what? and and thank you, Jeff. Uh, uh, you know what my favorite awful planted pilot pilot was? Hmm. Do you remember in the Brady Bunch, the last season of the Brady Bunch? It was yeah. about their next door neighbors who adap- adopted did, these kids. Yeah, I remember oh, that. Yeah. Oh also, my god, it's so bad. It's awful. But you know what was awesome that didn't become a show? Uh, chips. There was a special unit of i think like the the highway patrol that were ninjas is that no you're making that up i'm not making that up i know this happened because look man i was 12 years old and if it was about ninjas i was in right it was like i watched the master religiously with lee van cleef and all that there were like it was a ninja episode of chips but i I don't understand You made a big point of saying if you were 12 years old, if you were 40, you would still be watching the Ninja. Oh, you're goddamn right. I would. I would. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, ninjas. But we know we listen to the 430 movie. We know what you like. (laughs) Exactly. We know. You know what? In Wednesday's tomorrow. 
So Wednesday is tomorrow. It's always tomorrow Wednesday. Is, is tomorrow is yesterday. Actually, okay. that's not really true. It's not always Wednesday someplace. Like maybe half the week. It's kind of Wednesday or close to Wednesday. Anything can happen, day. Anything. Day. I it's think like on, on the old Mickey Mouse. Wednesday. Wednesday is hump day. That yep. sounds sounds like an episode of the Orville. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good title for something, isn't it? It does indeed. Okay. Uh, and the Orville is coming back uh, in March. Uh, it may be time March. for us. Yeah, it's coming back in March. And in fact, they have a new subdeck. It's called the Orville New Horizons. So I guess it's a way of saying that the show is uh, has evolved Recasting. from the Orville. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm very interested. Contracts. I'm hoping maybe we can get uh, Dave Goodman or even Seth on the show. Uh, to talk about the Orville. We haven't done an Orville episode. I'd like to. I enjoy that show. I must I'm going to get Seth on the show to talk about Star Trek. Yeah. Because well, he's that, obviously a fan. We, we we have to work on that. And uh, um, yes, we, we should reach out to... Uh, yes, we. We <laughs> will. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll talk to David and, and Brandon and see if we can do the full court press on McFarland to get him. I, I just want to talk to you about Winds of War, to be honest. So, yeah. But that's just me. We'll have everyone tune out by the end of the episode. It'll be a new record. The analytics will say you had, you know, 12,000 listeners. I had negative 14 at the end. One, <laughs> one, one by the end. That's right. <laughs> okay. And it was you, Mark, checking the episode to make sure that it was technically okay. <laughs> Even Dr. Men was out by then. <laughs> let, let me are you guys listening to any other uh, podcast? Not, I'm not talking about electric surge podcasts. Any podcasts you've been listening to lately that you enjoy? You know what? I, I listen to Conan's Conan and O'Brien's. Yeah, it's uh, good. I was hoping you were going to say Conan the Barbarians. Can you Conan the Barbarians podcast this good week morning. on Conan's podcast? Good morning. Today we're going <laughs> to uh, hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow we pray to Kram. Um, okay. Um, I'm listening, you know, I'm listening to the Sweet Smell of Succession, which is a succession podcast, which I'm really oh, that's enjoying. Clever. Good. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was good. And um, you know, I've I've talked about it on the show before. Uh, I really like that Gene and Roger podcast about uh, yep. Siskel and Ebert. And if you haven't listened to it, you should definitely listen to it. Um, obviously, um you should be listening to our other podcasts, of course. Um, but I've done enough uh, plugging for our own stuff. Um, what about you, um, uh, Ashley Miller? Anything you're listening to in the, in the podcast? Yeah, weirdly world? enough, for reasons I cannot explain, um, I started listening to this podcast called Twice Bitten, which is uh, which is a podcast of these uh, these D and D players who are running through the Curse of Strahd module of D and D, and they've recorded it all, and they're all like dms it's like this whole thing and it's like it's really interesting it's like i didn't expect it to be interesting but by god i am listening to hours and hours of other people playing dungeons and dragons and really enjoying it that's interesting because when we canceled disco nights we were looking for a new show for the network and one of the things we talked about was um doing a DD show but there's so many good ones out there that we Mm -hmm. didn't want it's kind of, I think, the problem we had with Rebel and the Rogue. There are a lot of really great Star Wars podcasts. What's so the discriminator, right? Yeah, like, what's yeah. the thing that makes it special? You know, it's not like, you know, there are a lot of Star Trek podcasts, but it's like the pizza. You've tried the rest, now try the best. So right. um, 
uh, I, you know, it's kind of like finding a show you want to be like your cartoon bar room. I think, you know, you just had Dave Thomas on recently, you know, you had D, uh, D Bradley Baker. I mean, you, you know, it's just the, the best animation podcast out there. So if we can't do things really well, it's like, I kind of don't want right. to do them. And then there's that uh, Trexpert's briefing room, an entirely different podcast. Entirely different. And I don't know if you've been listening lately to uh, Best Movies Never Made, but those guys are just on fire. I mean, they're so good, the, the shows they've been doing. Yeah, so, very uh, thorough. And thorough. thorough. They're very thorough. <laughs> I'm waiting for uh, Big Lebowski uh, too. <laughs> right. Um, although I guess uh, they what was they did that with the, the Jesus Rolls. Uh, it wasn't yeah. the Cone Brothers, but uh, Totoro did that. See, yeah. that would be a pretty good D&D podcast. The Jesus Rolls. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta fuck the vampire in the ass, man. And speaking I, 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 of well, Jesus, roll your D20. it's time for Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Jesus and anal, here we go. Uh, how about that transition, Dave, I, gentlemen? I um, so, okay. Uh, we're, we um, started uh, dissecting the uh, original series Bible. This is the third revision from um uh april 1967 so it was uh late in the production of the first season so writers uh were being uh you know started on the uh second season of the show and given copies of the uh of the bible as they began work on the second season uh where we left off was right as we were getting to standing sets now of course these are sets that that are are built on stages that you you know for a bottle show um you never leave the ship you just use the semi-permanent semi-permanent sets that you yeah. don't have to strike you don't have to put up again uh that they are easy to access and some of them are uh, also pre-lit so i was just gonna say yeah exactly i mean that's why like when you go to the squad room on uh, you know police show literally um you can pre pre you know hopefully you have a grid a lighting grid that's pre-lit the dp can just sort of tell the gaffer okay you know and the, the grid goes on and you dial on a couple of uh, fill lights and you're good to go yeah. And as opposed to, you know, when you're on a new set, a swing set, it could take hours to light um, because you've never been on that set before. Hours Certainly on like location, day. hours would seem like days. Now, a lot of these sets also were frequently redressed, which yeah. would mean uh, chances are, um, you know, wild walls could be moved. But more often it was a um, set deck would be changed right. and, 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 and furniture swapped out. So um, we're about to look at that, starting with the bridge. Uh, really one of the most iconic and memorable sets in the history of Star Trek is the original bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, it evolved somewhat from the original pilots. It, I would argue it probably never looked better than it did in the original series. Mm -hmm. um, as much as we, we love uh, the Enterprise and the motion picture, the actual, the exterior of the Enterprise is the best the Enterprise has ever looked from the outside. I would say from the inside, I don't know if Star if the bridge ever looked better than it did in the original series. Agree. I mean, it, it felt very alive. Um, it was interesting from almost any angle. I think one of the things we talked about when we were talking about the next generation Bible that Darren pointed out was that it felt like the next generation bridge was designed as though it were actually the bridge. <laughs> and because of that, it felt a little sterile. It felt a little uninteresting, right? Like it was always kind of the hotel lobby thing, but on the original series, like that, it was almost perfectly designed. And it's interesting to me. It like, was when you designed look, for television. Yes, exactly. And if you look at 
the bridge, I would say that other than the, the bridge of the original series Enterprise, the most successful bridge set other than that to me was the bridge set for the Defiant on uh, Deep Space Nine, which I think kind of took a lot of its cues from the original series. It had that same sort of sense of, you know, you're compact, you know, the captain is very much at the center of that set. It was designed to be shot from almost any angle and to give the sense that things are happening in the background. Um, and that was the thing in the original series bridge that you just, you always felt like it was alive and it was, it was a home set in the best sense. I mean, when you think about the original series, other than planet hell, I mean, that's the space that we think about the most, right? right? Like that's the one we have the most affection for. And I have to say that unlike Jeff Bond and Rob Burnett and Darren, I was never a very good model builder as a kid. So when I built that bridge, that, that AMT bridge, that was a bitch. That was hard yeah, to was. build that. And, and putting the little stickers on all the panels. To be man. fair, lots of professional model builders have had lots of trouble with that particular kit. So don't feel ashamed. Oh, I feel better already. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I wish you had told, called and told me that on my birthday. It would have been a better day. Okay, so um, why don't you read us this description of the bridge, Mr. Docterman? Interior bridge, a circular platform set where Captain Kirk presides over the whole ship's complex. Access is achieved to this set by means of a turbo lift elevator, which opens directly onto the set. Kirk sits in his command chair and the inner lower elevation facing the large bridge viewing screen. Directly in front of him, also facing the screen, sit the navigator and the helmsman at their individual console. In the outer circular elevation of the set are various positions for communications officer and various technician crewmen and other ship's officers. Mr. Spock, our science officer, presides over a console which is known as the library computer station. Fantastic. Well, that describes the bridge. Um... And uh, just a beautiful creation from Matt Jeffries, isn't it, Darren? Well, uh, yeah, and it, it, uh, to be honest, it wasn't only Matt Jeffries. It was also the uh, other uh, art directors on the pilot, basically, uh, Pato Guzman and uh, one other that I can't remember right now. But Jessica uh, von Puttermaker. Jessica von Puttermaker, of course. Um, it, it's, it is a... You know, for as much as we talk about it uh, being a, uh, a, a superior design for actual, you know, military uh, activity and uh, efficient communication between various uh, personnel, it is absolutely built for TV because you can have Captain Kirk in a medium shot and you can have right behind him uh, Lieutenant Uhura giving her report. And you can keep everybody in the frame at once if you want. You can cut away to someone who is talking to Captain Kirk and still uh, not screw up your eyeline. Um, it is uh, very well thought out for composing interesting shots and having your actors uh, integrated and communicating with each other. And I, I've said this before on the podcast, um, but I'll mention it again. I remember um, I was sitting with one of the producers of Star Trek 2009 who was showing me a couple of the early um, uh, concept art for the bridge of the enterprise before it became a Mac store, an Apple store. And um, I remember them showing me one that was, you know, very, very much the original series bridge, mm -hmm. but updated 
you know, subtly, obviously, you know, technology and and um, uh, um, and the size of it, but it was pretty much the original Sirius Bridge. And for people who say, oh, you know, that was from the 60s, you could never do that now. Let me tell you, you can do it. Of course you can. It all looked you gotta, extraordinary. All you got to do is say, yeah, let's do that. Let, let's do that. Yeah. Starfleet was able to divert that freighter. Good. That means Sherman's planet will get its squad over to Cayley only a few weeks late. I don't see any triples around here. And you won't find a triple on this entire ship. Bones. How would you do that? Well, I cannot take credit for another man's work. Scotty did it. Scotty! Where are the triples? Oh, uh, Captain, it was really Mr. Spock's recommendation. Of course. Spock. Based on computer analysis, of course. Taking into account the possibilities of... Gentlemen, I don't want to interrupt this mutual admiration society, but I'd like to know where the triples are. Tell him, Spock. Well, it was Mr. Scott who performed the actual engineering. Mr. Scott! Where are the triples? I used the transporter, Captain. You used the transporter? Aye. Well, where did you transport them? Scott, you didn't transport them into space, did you? Captain Kirk, that'd be inhuman. Well, where are they? I gave them a very good home, sir. Where? I gave them to the Klingon, sir. Aye, sir. Before they went into warp, I transported the whole kit and caboodle into the air engine room, where there'll be no trouble at all. <laughs> you know, it's not paying homage. I mean, it was literally like they and it wasn't, you, you know, like in relics or um, um, in, in, you know, where it was troubles, trials and tribulations. It was updated that it felt modern and contemporary, yeah. but it was exactly the design. It was the, the same original. proportions. It was the same layout. It was just different materials. And right. it was gorgeous. And I, I so wish uh, they had gone with that. And I, I wish that uh, the, the, the Strange New Worlds had adapted that. I don't uh, know approach. if I've ever told you this, but I interviewed for Star Trek 09 and uh, with, the, with the production designer. And he specifically asked me, how would you redo the bridge? And I told him that. I say, leave the proportions exactly the same. Have people sitting exactly where they sat on the TV series and just update it with uh, new surfaces and new materials. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll work just fine. And uh, he uh, sort of, you know, grinned and said, okay, thanks very much. Because everybody wants to put their own yeah. fingerprints. Right. On it's the same yeah. thing they did in 2009 with the Enterprise. Yeah. With the ship, the exterior, where you literally could have done the same ship as Star Trek, the motion picture. There was no reason to change it. Alternate yeah. universe, whatever. And it would have looked gorgeous. But they had to fuck around with it just so they could have their fingerprints on it. Yeah. And it's a shame because it looks, you know, it doesn't hold a candle to that uh, 1979 redesign. And this ends our get off my lawn section of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> OK, so now we're going to talk about elevators. 
Okay, so this is the turbo lift all through the ship or turbo lifts, which can be programmed for lateral and or vertical movement. One can reach most any section aboard by activating its control vocally. And again, this may not seem very um, prescient to us in, in 2021, but the idea of controlling an elevator uh, vocally uh, yeah. at, at, in, in 1960. Controlling anything vocally. is magic. It, it, it was magic, right. It seemed impossible. It seemed yeah. like, you know, as, as crazy and, and futuristic as transporters or yeah. Medusan ambassadors or it anything. Take a computer the size of a room to understand someone talking to it. That's right. And up until a few years ago, I mean, I remember, yeah, Ashley, you remember Final Draft had that thing where, you know, it was voice control and voice where read back and it would be like, enter. And, and, and you so know, it was you always had, like Stephen Hawking, but he was super right. high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and now just looking a few years, how far it's come. Oh, so yeah. uh, this is a really an extraordinary thing. And, you know, a lot of this stuff gets lost when people read it now, um, not, not, you know, not realizing just how truly ahead of its time Star Trek was. Done. Okay. And then, uh, Ashley, tell us about the ship's corridors. They're curved, like oh. the humans. For, for your uh, pleasure. With, with various interconnecting subquarters, various doors and hatches. Hey, uh, they open in a variety of areas within the Enterprise proper. We play these as existing in the different decks and levels of the ship, and of course, all have connecting turbo elevators. See, elevators. Now look, we might think that, well, shit, why are we talking about the corridors? Well, let me tell you something. Like the the corridors to me, like and on other than the bridge, may be the most important standing set. That's where you get all your work done. That's where you get all your work done, man. Like when you want to like have these characters talking about shit and they're literally on their feet, and you want to give the illusion of movement and you want to yeah. do the walk and talk, you want the corridors to look good and to be awesome and to feel like they go someplace and they're functional. Just ask Aaron Sorkin. Damn right. So uh, what's really interesting um, next is the transporter room. And, you know, it's interesting because the first thing they say is we assume there are various transporter rooms through the vessel. Now, this was interesting because, of course, Franz Joseph, when he did his blueprints in the early 70s, showed a multiple a multiplicity of transporter rooms. But a lot of people pointed out, wait, in the enemy within, there was one transporter room and they weren't able to be so. This very clearly says the intention of the show is that there are multiple transporter rooms on the Enterprise, and which, of course, there would be. Obviously, the failure of the transporter in Enemy Within was a failure with the entire transporter system. system. That Just like in Doomsday Machine. Transporter rooms. Yes, right. that's correct. That's right. So it says the one we have we use has access from a corridor. Within, there is a console freestanding, which is controlled by the transporter officer and a technician. Until we cut the budget when there was only a technician. Right. Uh, they, in concert or singly, can transport up to six people at a time. And, of course, the return of said people. At certain times, objects out in space, which are in close proximity, can be brought aboard also, providing their mass and size are not too great. At one end of the set is the transporter chamber itself. It is a circular platform with several steps leading up to its six positions. Each person to be transported stands upon one of six light panels. There is a light panel above each position also. Within this chamber, people are made to disappear and appear optically as they are beamed to and from vessels or planet surfaces. Again, a set that probably has never been topped, despite the fact that it was redesigned multiple times for the movies and subsequent shows. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a it's such a great science fiction concept, you know. I mean, it, it arguably visually it might have come from uh, looking at Forbidden Planet uh, and those uh, those uh, chambers that the crew stood in uh, to avoid uh, deceleration when they were coming out of uh, out of uh, fast hyperspeed. Yeah, um, and uh, because it, it, they're visually very similar to that. Uh, but it is a it is sort of a, a science fiction trope that there is a chamber that something happens to people. So uh, and what a what a great uh, uh, easing of narrative storytelling where you can avoid the ship landing every week and all that stuff. You can theoretically get to the planet really quickly and get on with your story. Well, this was right. truly necessity is the mother of invention. And, you know, they couldn't do the ship landing. They couldn't do shuttlecraft going. I mean, they could, but it'd be really expensive and really unwieldy. So um, as a result, uh, teleportation, the transporter room is created by Gene Roddenberry and it's brilliant. Yeah. And it's like the thing that you don't even think about, right, with the with the shuttlecraft. It's it's not just a matter of like, what are the effects of landing the shuttlecraft or take off from the ship? I mean, the truth of the matter is you do that once or twice. You have a couple of different angles and you've got stock right now. Okay, landing on the planet is maybe a totally different deal, but you're basically just putting the shuttlecraft, you know, on your set, whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you really start breaking down all of the things that you would need to do to sell, we're getting on the shuttlecraft, we're getting off the shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft is a thing. It's part of the holy crap, just covering all of that. It's not about the the it's not about the visual effects. You know, it is just about what you have to shoot to tell the story. And with the transporter beam, it's just beam me up and you stand there. Well, not only that, but think about how many times the landing party had to go undercover in a private little war, bread and circuses, phrase child. If they had to land the ship or land a ship, and, 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 you know, it, but when you beam down, it's like, oh, just put us behind that tree. You know, it's like I, I, literally it, anywhere. Yeah. Or in that cave or near that, uh, you know, hydro. Put us on the cave set. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So uh, Ashley, here again is something super prescient uh, uh, that would come to pass in the subsequent decades. Tell us about the sick bay and doctor's office, which again was so ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. What's this? It's called blood. Watch your step. The officers move up by assassination. Chekhov tried it on me. Mr. Sulu is security chief, like the ancient Gestapo. And my sick bay is a chamber of horrors. Two of my assistants were betting on the tolerance of an injured man. How long it would take him to pass out from the pain. Report on technology. Mostly variations in instrumentation. Nothing I can't handle. Star readings? Everything's exactly where it should be, except us. Ahead of its time and also an incredibly useful, well-used set. A a three-room complex. The doctor's office has direct access to a ship's quarter. I would hope so. Uh, There's access to his office, from his office to an examining room. Also a sick bay proper. Access can be made directly from the corridor. I think we said that. Within the the sick bay, there are built-in bed positions with a complete diagnostic panel above each. Okay? Now we're getting into the prescience. This medical device scans the patient continually, takes readings and registers, same upon the diagnostic panel instrument face. Thus, blood pressure, pulse rate, heartbeat, respirations, and various other readings are continuously recorded and displayed for each patient without the necessity of physical contact between doctor 
and patient. Like, and that is something now it's like you go in any hospital, like you get plugged into all the machinery, constantly monitoring you. Um, and just like the, the, the immediacy of the information was like, first of all, it was great for storytelling because, you know, we didn't have to watch procedure. We didn't see Dr. McCoy, MD, like it's all, it's never lupus. Like that, that never happened. Um, we were able to kind of with the original series sort of quickly convey, you know, this is, this is the thing that's, that's wrong with our crewmen, right. Or this is the thing that's, that's wrong with, with Jim, you know, or with Spock. Uh, or whatever. I, I think like it's, it was in many ways, it was, it was another iconic um, set for Star Trek because of the use that it got. And there are definitely sets on this list. I know we're going to get to them that didn't get that kind of use, right. but there was just real value to it because you get to say, these are the things that are messing up our crewmen. And, uh, and, and, and there's a, a, a description of the engineering deck, the briefing room. We all know what those are. Um, and then the rec recreation room uh, is not a standing set. It is described as a redress of other sets to give us a variety of mess and recreation facilities. And these crew members can relax and enjoy their leisure time. Various games such as three-dimensional chess can be played here. So, and then we get into the cabins and the quarters. So Darren, take us through um, the captain's quarters and how that's used in the show. Interior captain's quarters. Captain Kirk has a two-room complex. One room contains his working area when he is away from the bridge. There is access from this room to the next room where his sleeping quarters are. There's direct access to the ship's corridor from either room. There are viewing and communication devices here, as in most major sets. But interior Mr. Spock's cabin is in fact a redress of Captain Kirk's cabin. It will, of course, be distinctly Spockian in nature and suggest something of his homeland. And it will have draperies. <laughs> I added that last <laughs> And candles. Candles. <laughs> like it's a freaking candle store. And of course, the passenger's quarters, again, a redress of Captain Kirk's quarters, unless a larger area is required, at which time it will be constructed out of a redress of the briefing room. But they're not done yet. There's more redresses to come. Interior ships Christine Chapel. That's uh, right. Ship, ship's Chapel. It's a redress <laughs> of the transport. It's a redress of number one from the cage. <laughs> uh, interior dining room. Redress of other sets as required. I'm not exactly sure they ever had it. No. They they had had it. No longer to be served at diplomatic they, functions. They did not. It was, they, and it was in you know, a redress of the briefing room. They did have the briefing room where Khan had uh, dinner with them, of course. That's right. Uh, interior gymnasium, a redress of another set. This is actually a redress of uh, some of the sickbay rooms. Uh, it is sufficiently sized to allow various forms of physical exercise and limited area sports, such as wrestling, fencing, et cetera. Fencing, oh my. No water polo. But no, no wrestling <laughs> on Sundays <laughs> with Maury. Of course, we have the exterior shuttlecraft, a full-size mock-up of a six or seven passenger ship, which can be sent out in intrasolar system missions. This craft can be duplicated in miniature. And of course, the interior shuttlecraft, full-sized interior mock-up of above craft. Uh, we have uh, two other paragraphs that uh, complete this uh, uh, set section. Interior hangar deck. 
this is a miniature set, optically created. It's extremely to be a little. It's extremely little. It's very how tiny. How do people get into it? How do people get into it? It's like this Zoolander. Energetic for ants. It's created to be a huge football field size area where our shuttlecraft or crafts are stored. It is at the rear of the thick cigar-shaped engineering section of our vessel, and on the scale model is visible in with the huge hangar doors, which roll open when a shuttlecraft departs from or returns to our vessel. Caution. Miniature and optical work like this is expensive and must be a vital element in the story when used. This is the uh, observation deck. That's the flight deck down there with the shuttlecraft. Interesting. Isn't it? Tell me, Captain Kirk. Anything. Did you order the soft lights especially for the occasion? If I had ordered soft lights, I'd also have arranged for music and flowers. Unfortunately, it isn't so. On the Enterprise, we try to duplicate Earth conditions of night and day as closely as possible. Starlight, star bright. I wish I may, I wish I might. Do you remember that, Captain? It's very old. Almost as old as the stars themselves. And the ship. All this power surging and throbbing, yet under control. Are you like that, Captain? All this power at your command. The decisions that you have to make. Come from a very human source. Are you, Captain? Human. You can count on it. Tell me about the women in your world, Captain. I'd rather talk about you. You must have wanted to perform since the first time you saw your father act. When was that? In the beginning. Tell me about it. That's not fair. You haven't answered my question about the women. What would you like to know? Has the machine changed them? Made them just people instead of women? Worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, but a woman always remains a woman. All this, and power too. Caesar of the stars, and Cleopatra to worship him. So vital, it almost never happens. That's correct. Uh, and last but not least, others. Obviously, various stories may require specialized one-time sets. Past examples of this have been a botany section. Botany. A computer bank area, an observation deck with stars visible through a window, and so on. Again, completely new and unusual sets are costly and should be vital in the story if used. If planet sets and interiors are required, then new ship sets should be minimized. The writer must use experience and common sense in keeping construction costs within a normal television budget. Here's Unless a question. Harlan Ellison. That's so Next Generation, one of their standing sets was Planet Hell. Right. 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 Yes. So did the original series not have oh, no, Planet they did. Hell? They, they, okay. they did. They, they did. absolutely But did. it was smaller. 
Yeah. I mean, so it's sort of a planet heck. Yeah. That, yeah. That's why when we talked to like Ralph Sinetsky about um, metamorphosis, he talked about how difficult it was to shoot that because they had the, the shuttlecraft, you know, on the planetoid with Zephyr right. Cochran. And there to get them enough all room to get the angle of the shuttlecraft so that you could see it without everything else getting in the way, which is why they, they came up with this uh, sort of creative way of having uh, a rock cliff next to it to sort of hide the permanence. But if you watch, you know, any of the episodes where they're on a planet, it's not a location, but it's like the, you know, the quote unquote styrofoam rocks, you'll see how much it's the same area, just, you know, new angles, you know, to create a sense that the planet is bigger than it is. Um, And it's interesting because if you look in the cage, they actually created that, that, um, that backing, uh, you know, the back, the background backing um, before translates, but um but the um, later on, it was all usually done with lights right. and gels and, and they didn't actually create like sort of, you know, you'd see the matte painting perhaps or an establishing of the planet. But then once you were on, it would just be the sky with different yeah. colored gels. Like Spectre of the Gub. That's correct. Spectre of the Gub, yep. So, Spectre of the Gub. Uh, and then, um, you know, it goes into the different Star Trek technology, which we're all familiar with, uh, the tricorder, the phasers, um, phaser the one, agonizer. phaser two. Now it does talk about a phaser rifle is presently being designed. It will consist of the phaser pistol adapted into a rifle mount that's having even greater range and power. I wanted um, to see that. Me too. Yeah, I really I wanted to see that a, a phaser rifle in the style of the hand phaser. That would have been super cool. Did they ever do I, even any still drawings for that? It. I mean, my God, are there, there've got to be concept I drawings think, of that I someplace. Think they, I think they might have. They just never could afford it, basically. Yeah. Wow. And then they never used the phaser rifle again because they didn't know because they returned it to the guy who built it. Yeah. 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 The one from where no man has gone before. Yeah. Which has now been auctioned for some ungodly amount of money to Rob Burnett. (laughs) If only. Uh, If that were the case, I would be over there. uh, Right now. Rescuing it. Right. Uh, Scanning it. Yeah. It also says in such stories, we've used the phaser as a tool, such as a cutting torch. Phasers can also be set to overload, resulting in a power buildup and explosion, which destroys the phaser and anything in close proximity. So they, they really thought this could be used through. to brew coffee. You know, and yeah, then amazing. communicators are a portable intercom about the size of the hand phasers, not generally used aboard the vessel since there are communication panels strategically located everywhere on the ship. See, again, so much thought has gone into the world building here. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we take it for granted because we've watched this for 55 years, but uh, well, maybe not 55 years, but it, we've watched it for many years. Um, so, um, uh, you know, the world building here is extraordinary. And again, the idea of the communicators has been said many times, you know, the, the, no one had even conceived of um, cell phones, mobile phones at that point. Um, so it, it was a remarkable um, uh, invention. Well, for walkie talkies did exist. But, yeah, but this didn't have antennas on it. No. It, 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 you know. Uh, was... Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, the the, uh, the flip open grid was the antenna of the uh, communicator. Let's uh, remember that. Great. Okay, we, we got description of transporters. Uh, its range is limited to about sixteen thousand miles. Huh. Take that, Simon Peg. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and it describes how the transporter works which is great. And then we get to the viewing screens. Now this, somebody should have told Fred Freiberger, um, the most important of these is the bridge viewing screen. This is underlined, not a window, Flint. 
It is an electronic <laughs> viewing screen, which can be pointed outside in any direction and with various magnifications. Most often it is aimed in the direction of ship's travel and shows the stars passing as we make our way through space. In addition, intercom viewing screens connect most areas of the vessel. For example, Kirk in his cabin can call Sulu or Spock on the bridge. They zoom. See them and be seen through his intercom viewing screen. Or think of it as simply a video telephone hookup, such as a project already being planned today. There is also a <laughs> rectangular screen over Mr. Spock's library computer station on which can be flash visual information from the ship's records. Now, one thing that Star Trek did not anticipate with the viewing screens and sort of the, the Zoom function, the teleconference function, was Snapchat filters. So there was <laughs> there was never a scene where, you know, you would have Mr. Spock saying, you know, Captain, I, I am not really a cat. You know, I mean, as as great as that might be, we just we just didn't have it. Or like the funny anime eyes. Like they just never did that. On they didn't Star see Trek. that coming. It was a, didn't, they didn't, didn't see it didn't, coming. Didn't see it coming. It was a failure of imagination on their part. They, if, if they would be, uh, if they had seen it coming, Gene would not have been doing the college lecture circuit. He would have had more money than God during the seventies, but he Damn did right not he see it coming. Okay. And then we described the sensors. We know what that is, but again, ahead of its time, the idea that they can analyze the composition of an object, meant space, its dimensions, of a vessel, the presence and number of human or alien life aboard, the geological age of a meteorite, meteoroid, almost anything. Mr. Spock is generally in charge of the ship's sensors and takes most of these readings from his hooded screen at his library computer station. And then it describes how the sensor works with the tricorder. Goes into a great deal of information about the deflectors as well. Um, and it does note the ship's transporter cannot be used while the deflector screen is operating. It's an invisible energy shield. Sure. Hopefully. Sure. Why not? Description of the tractor beam, which has a maximum range of about 100,000 miles. Um, in short, the grappling hook and towing line of our future century. Then there is a great description. The computer. A computer? What's that? Computer. Well, I'll tell computer. you. Computer. Computer. The Bible tells us the logical scientific extension of a somewhat bulky and limited computer of our own 20th century, deep in the heart of the vessel are rows upon rows of computer banks. In effect, a giant electronic brain, which runs our vessel, setting course on command, automatically maintaining it, operated the life support systems, which include <clears throat> atmosphere and gravity, warn and take action against unexpected dangers and so on. Isn't it interesting that even then, as ahead of, the t ahead of their time as they were, um, it mentions that there are rows and rows of computer banks inside the um, enterprise. Also, the computer banks of the enterprise literally hold the entire body of recorded knowledge of the human race. I thought that was memory alpha. The ship's right. computers can be connected into any intercom station or viewing screen, either verbally or visually. Again, very ahead of its time. Analyze practically any known information in a matter of seconds. However, Mr. Spock's bridge position connects most directly and completely with the ship's computers. Now, Darren, tell us about computer, computer, computer voice. When an intercom station on the ship is connected into the computer banks for a question, the answer is given in our computer voice, uh, played by Majel. Uh, <laughs> this, this mechanical voice comes directly from the vessel's electronic brain and deals only in fact. If it is an ambiguous question and is asked, this voice will so inform the questioner. It can be a disconcerting experience for some as it will also reject lies, misinformation, and uh, vaccine uh, hyperbole. 
Well, let's and, see if they got that right. Sometimes it will accidentally order dollhouses for you from Amazon. Well, let's see if they got no that right. Uh, Alexa, what is your favorite Star Trek movie? Here's something I found on the web. According to LATimes.com, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan is probably my favorite. Well, now we have to turn this into a competition. Hey, Siri, no, 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 don't what's say the that. best Star don't. Trek movie? Stop saying these things. Our listeners are yelling at you because their home units are turning on. What did Siri say? From Fresh to Rotten. Star Trek. Star Trek Beyond. This is Fresh to Rotten. Star Trek X Nemesis 2002. Star Trek Nine Insurrection. What Do you want it? to hear the next five movies? No. God, no. <laughs> no, stop it. Yeah, great. It's only naming the modern ones. Awesome. And now, so like, you literally, counts. like, everybody listening to this is what, is what you're trying to tell us, Terry. No, no, literally, everybody countdown. listening, like, their computers just heard us say that, and now we've just set them off. It's yeah. doing a yeah. countdown. It's okay. It's, it's counting down. It's just explaining. My, Alexa said Star Trek Two. She said Star Trek Two. So uh, Siri was just counting down all the uh, Stop all the Star Trek movies. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, the S word, the A word. Yes. Now that it's a killing either. word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moadib, can we set our devices to respond to Moadib? It would be that would amazing be awesome. if we could, right? It sort of can tell us the future. It just sort of like sees like different versions of it. It's just, I'd like it. Moadib, like what it. is your favorite Star Trek movie? <laughs> 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 Modib, what is your favorite Dune movie? Uh, <laughs> the, one with the, the one with the water and the whales. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Okay, so now we get into measurements, but that's math. So we're going to skip over that, save that for the Voyager Bible, because we know Janeway loves math when she's not standing in a closet with a sailor. Um, now, it does say, note, the writer need not trouble himself. With and it says himself, not themselves, with computing or studying such terms. We have excellent technical advisors who review all scripts. Yes. So obviously, um, Dorothy did not write that because I'm sure she <laughs> would have written themselves and not himself. Um, says for those who are interested, the term parsec is also used, and it goes into a great deal of uh, uh, information about uh, uh, measurements in space. For example, the closest star to Earth is Proxima Centauri, which is. 4.2 light years away and it goes on and on and there's more physics and math so i'm gonna skip all this <laughs> sorry Dad. sorry scott uh, <laughs> sorry sorry everyone who's interested in math especially yeah. ashley um <laughs> and then uh it describes the captain's log uh darren <laughs> i don't know why i found that funny but because I did. you're 12 it's because yeah 12. exactly yeah Darren, would you please explain the captain's log to us? The captain's log, the captain's voiceover, a portion of his dictated log, which we hear over establishing the silent scenes. We need not see him dictating it. We can assume we are hearing portions of a uh, record dictated later. Voiceover is rarely used in the teaser since it tends to slow down the action there. However, it is almost always used at the beginning of Act One, recapping and explaining the backstory and situation to that point. Isn't it interesting? It's almost like a detective drama or film noir. It absolutely. You know? Yeah, but I can live with it. I can't. Sushi. That's what my ex-wife called me. <laughs> at the writer's discretion, it can open other acts or can be used as a bridge 
within Acts, explaining in terse, log-like fashion things which might otherwise require many slow pages and dialogue between characters. Beaten and sobbing, Finney told me what he'd done to the ship. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's funny. Most generally, it tells us where we are and what has been going on. And sometimes it suggests the captain's stream of consciousness, any fears or doubts he may have at the moment. Keep in mind, voiceover itself can become tedious. Keep it as short. Sushi, cold fish. That's what my ex-wife called me. And as much to the point as possible. Mm. I think that's a good good description of what you should and shouldn't do uh, with the captain. Yeah, absolutely. That's, That's a great description. And the captain's log is great in terms of um, avoiding needless exposition. It gets right to the point, you know, and it also helps you jump into a story, uh, um, which is terrific. Oh, you know. um, Yeah. Using the light speed breakaway factor, the enterprise has moved back through time to the 20th century. Our purpose, historical research. Boom. And that's that's 20 minutes of story in any other Star Trek. And I'm being charitable. Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay, subspace radio. Uh, we talk about how this works. Um, yeah, communications from- we need a communication that is faster than light because we are going faster than light. And if we don't have a communication system that does even faster than that, there is no point. We use the term subspace since it is necessary. The communication from the enterprise to its bases are a space warp effect, which travels at speeds far exceeding that of the enterprise. If we did not have such subspace or space warp communications. Obviously, the Enterprise could warp off to a base and return faster than a message could be sent there. Great. That's good science. Explains it. it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm agreeing. That's what I'm saying. So it's interesting explaining we how that happens. We don't want to send any messages that get received before we send them. Right. Although I have that would to be say, a problem. It, it is funny sometimes when, you know, uh, uh, Captain Kirk will ask for permission and then he doesn't get like in a mock time and doesn't get the response until after the episode's over. Right, right. I right. mean, like, that's clever. I mean, that's yeah. that's yeah. Well, it's um, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Now, this is really interesting, the Starbase description, Ashley, because um, this addresses something that we talked a lot about with Voyager and Enterprise, the whole idea of being out there on the frontier and how from you know, does the is there a danger of the Star Trek universe becoming too familiar? to us and does that take away from the ability to create suspense and drama so this uh, this uh, bible is clearly aware of that and wants to deal with the prevalence of earth bases in a way that maintains uh, a certain degree of suspense so ashley can you can you read this sure so from past stories we can assume there are 17 starfleet command centers strategically located throughout our galaxy their commanding officer usually has the rank of Commodore, we'll bookmark that for a second. Uh, These bases provide repair, supply, replacement of personnel, and so on. They can also be used for shore leave, unless, of course, there's a planet with a white rabbit on it. The And this is underlined, okay? So it's super duper important, so I'll read it extra loud. The Star Trek format is to use star bases with star base commanders only when vital to a story, preferring to keep Kirk and the Enterprise far away and out of touch so that the dramatic decisions are Kirk's. When necessary, we can establish our distance from a Starfleet base is such that it takes hours or days, if going by the book, for subspace radio messages to be exchanged. And I think, look, the, the point of all this is that they're saying, look, these things obviously exist in the context of world building. We want to feel like 
they're a thing that's out there um, because they would be. But we also want to maintain the idea that we're on the edge. We're on the frontier, yeah. that there is no help. We're the only ship in the quadrant. Again. And there's nothing worse than having your main character waiting around for instructions. That's right. right. Waiting for the plot to call and tell yeah. you what to do. What it shows is that these writers understood drama. Yep. You know, right. And they got it and they knew how to do it. And that's why it's interesting when you hear an enterprise, they talk about, oh, we, we had to set it before Star Trek before there's all this stuff, you know, so that we're in a situation where we can make our own decisions or send them to the Delta Quadrant because they don't have Starfleet to rely on. Well, the original did it without coming up with some kind of high concept nonsense, right? They just did it right here. Well, there are 17 star bases, can't always get in touch. Let's avoid doing it unless we have to. That's right. Because that's drama. Because our main character, the captain, should be making the key dramatic decisions. That's right. Not waiting for the plot to make them for him. Yep. Okay. Great. Now they describe Starfleet and Starfleet Command. Most of our best drama comes out of Kirk's lonely decisions. Stay away from petty military politics, <coughs> like Star Trek Three. <clears throat> it usually comes <laughs> off as unbelievable in our advanced century. Also keep clear of space fleet maneuvers, government yachts, and similar Buck Rogers concepts. Mm-hmm. Now, this is surprising. I'm surprised to see this make an appearance yeah. in the uh, in the Bible. Uh, Darren, tell us what it is. General order number one. The only Starfleet order that concerns us in most stories. It is a wise but often troublesome rule which prohibits starship interference with the normal development of alien life and alien societies. It can be disregarded when absolutely vital to the interests of the entire Earth Federation, but the captain who does violate it had better be ready to present a sound defense of his actions. That's an episode I would have liked to have seen. Yeah. Well, we saw hints of it in several. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jesus. Of course, uh, the Omega Glory. I mean, he violated the prime directive like it was. His yeah, job. but I, I, I'd like to see Captain Kirk having to defend his decision to violate a prime directive. Yeah, you know, like true. a court martial story without court martial. Right. Well, interestingly enough, there is a uh, Star Trek novel by uh, Judy and Gar Reeve Stevens called Prime Directive. Yes, I remember it well. It deals with just that, and it's a, a great story. And I wish that they would do a film of that someday. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Um, okay, orbit. The Enterprise usually takes up what we see. It, this again d- describes uh, orbit. Uh, our vessel was constructed in space, and has oh, our vessel was constructed oh, in space. Constructed space. It has never felt the solidity of the surface of a planet. By the way, that's oh, underlined. Underlined. Yeah, underlined. In other words, it doesn't land; it stays in orbit. Yeah. Okay. And it can't be just driven up on by guys on motorcycles. <laughs> Okay. There are no pockets in the future. Now they're talking about uh, clothing related gear. No pockets in the future. When equipment is needed, it's attached to special belts. We do not have spacesuits available or other forms of environmental suits for hostile planet surfaces until the filling web comes about. Well, they had actually done it for naked time. Right. So um, it's weird that that's in there. Uh, These may be obtained for special scripts, but keep in mind that we generally restrict our missions to class M planets approximating Earth conditions. Um, there's then, just, again, description of star dates, descriptions of light speed, descriptions of solar systems, galaxies, more science. 
science, science, blah, blah, blah. She blinded me with science. Uh, note, our starship will never leave our galaxy. Aha. Uh -huh. But it doesn't say it will never go to the center of our galaxy. By conservative scientific estimate, it's uncounted millions of suns and planets, include at least several billion planets, quite like Earth, more than enough adventures for even an unusually long television run. That's funny. It doesn't say anything there about God being in the middle of the galaxy. That's uh, weird. Now, uh, if we get Carl Sagan to read this next, the description of the universe. The universe. <laughs> we won't pretend to be able to describe this, but limiting ourselves to the same kind of general explanation above, it is made up of untold billions of billions of galaxies. If the imagination is staggered by the distances between the stars of our own galaxy, then the empty space between the galaxies is almost incomprehensible. For this reason alone, our starship never visits other galaxies. At even the maximum warp speed of our vessel, it would take thousands of years to even approach near our nearest galaxy neighbor. Let's Thank get you. this to the captain. <laughs> okay. Well, that was interesting. That was our, our little science and uh, <laughs> our little science information. Um, we talk about the nature of humanity and referencing to mankind. But now we come to our part of the Bible. And this should be fun. The frequently the, asked questions list. The question and answer portion of our Bible. It's almost like a Star Trek convention. <laughs> except except not but if this is only the... we had the family feud music to play us in on this oh uh, my god but that's all right well everyone hum it to themselves and uh, and we'll begin Okay, we, shall we begin? I think we shall. So yeah. we will start with our, I'm going to call that guy in the back. Uh, the uh, mission of the uh, USS Enterprise, um, isn't it something like that of, uh, say, English warships at the turn of the century? Uh, well, thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, it's, a, it's very close. Uh, as you recall, in those days, vessels of the major powers were assigned to sectors of various oceans where they represented their government there. Out of contact with the Admiralty for long periods, the captains of such vessels had broad discretionary powers in regulating trade, bush wars, putting down slavery, 
or creating slavery, assisting scientific investigations and geological surveys, even to becoming involved in relatively minor items like searching for a lost explorer or schoolmistress. Okay, fascinating. Okay, <laughs> uh, you in the first row, do, do the uh, science fiction pros have any helpful hints for us? Um, yes. Beware of getting too wrapped up in the wonder of it all. The quality of an SF tale is usually inversely proportional to the pretensions a writer brings to it. Fantastic. Okay, uh, over there. Um, yep, yep. The guy who's paying for the uh, extra expensive uh, 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 captain seat chair up in the front row. I think you just paid an extra thousand dollars to ask a question. Go ahead, please. Uh, uh yes, yeah, sir. Is the uh, starship USS Enterprise a, 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 a military vessel? Uh yes, but uh, only semi-military in practice, omitting features which are heavily authoritarian. Uh, for example, we are not aware of officers and enlisted men categories, and we avoid saluting and other annoying medieval leftovers. On the other hand, we do keep a flavor of naval usage and terminology to help encourage believability and identification by the audience. After all, our own Navy today still retains remnants of traditions known to Nelson and Drake. Isn't it interesting that Gene Roddenberry, whose first show as a showrunner was Lieutenant about yeah. the Marines, is so um, disparaging about the accoutrements of the military. Not only do you see it here, but also in the Farpoint pilot where yeah. um, uh, uh, Picard makes fun of Q appearing in army fatigues. Maybe that has to do with the, uh, the Marine Corps not uh, participating in uh, the Lieutenant after a while. I mean, but it's also a little bit, I mean, we have chiefs, we have yeomen. It's like, what do you think those people are? It's like, of course we have officers we have enlisted. It's like we have all of those things. It's a little bit silly to sort of say that they don't exist in the Star Trek universe because they absolutely fucking do. Yeah. They do. They're yeah, right I, there. I see that kid in the back. Uh, he has his uh, hand up. Uh, what's, what's your question, sir? Um, um, I, oh, I thought you meant me. I know. The, the, one, the, the one next to him. What, uh, uh, what's uh, Captain Kirk's safe number? No, no. Uh, forget that. No, we're not going to answer that. Uh, uh, I, can, you, I can answer that. I can answer that. It's uh, boop. Zero, zero, zero. Boop, destruct boop. zero. Okay. Sorry, uh, I actually was talking. You don't get the answer. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're going to go with the other person. We're, we're not interested in Captain Kirk's safe number. Yes, sir. You, you sir. Um, I'm still confused about Earth of the Star Trek century. Uh, you said to make logical projections into the future and then turn down my story. <laughs> Look, you little prick. <laughs> because the basis of it was an automated, regimented, inhuman Earth Federation of the future, we've got to have an optimistic projection of man and his society if we're to approve of and identify with Captain Kirk, the crew of the Enterprise, and their mission, okay? Are you paying attention? However, Earth colonies, parallel civilizations, and alien cultures can present any range of problems leading to a story like uppity little bastards like you. Hey, Mark, I think you're missing the lady in the back driving the scooter no, that no, still has your blood on it. Before we do that, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you're going to find her at the convention. She, she, she's somewhere in the Nevada desert at this point. I'm not going to tell you where. Uh, but, but you should bring a shovel if you want to find her. Um, I, I, uh, I, I just want to say I can't emphasize enough the importance of what you just read. We must have underlined an optimistic projection of man and his society if we were to approve of and identify with Captain Kirk. Okay. And then it goes on to explain, however, Earth colonies, parallel civilizations, and alien cultures can present any range of problems leading to a story. Again, this should be printed on T-shirts. This should be printed on uh, index cards and, and sent to anyone involved in doing Star Trek at any Agreed. time in its history. But isn't it interesting? And this is, to me, always the, the balance and the intermix formula that so often can go wrong, which is we are presenting this optimistic future that centers on people who are real and behave in ways that we recognize, right? And when Star Trek is at its best, that's what Star Trek does. When Star Trek leans too far into, hey, we're utopian and we're perfect and like everything's great, then we get the first season or two of the next generation. It just makes us just really want to turn off our televisions or, you know, we can go the other direction. But I can't even imagine anybody would go the other direction. But as this next question uh, calls out, it explains what you just said. Yes, it does. So the next question, if you would, uh, the, the, the lady uh, uh, three rows back uh, on the aisle. But projecting the advanced capabilities of your starship, wouldn't man at time have drastically altered such needs as food, physical love, sleep? Etc. Uh, probably Elmo, but uh, if we did it, it, it would be at the cost of so dehumanizing these Star Trek characters that only a small fraction of the television audience would be interested, and the great percentage of viewers might even be repulsed. What do you do with these two shells? <laughs> <laughs> then uh, bust the uh, Starship crew. We get perfect humans. No, no, you can project too optimistically. Uh, I'll I'll forget reading this in a few years. Uh, we, we we want characters with a reasonable mixture of strength, weaknesses, and foibles. Again, believability is the key here. What kind of men would logically and believably man a vessel of this type? Obviously, they'd be better selected and trained than the wild enlisted shore leave group in Mister Roberts. On the other hand, they have not gotten too stuffy to enjoy themselves and their senses on liberty in an exotic alien city filled with unique pleasures. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, what about the Earthmen and other planets? Well, we'll find them in colonies, scientific bases, mining claims, trading posts, diplomatic posts, and so on. These space colonies and activities can be Anything which results in an entertaining, believable story. Practical to photograph. Don't ask us to create whole cities or alien landscapes. We can suggest them only. However, do keep in mind the possibility of aiming your story toward unusual local locations. Now, I have a question because, of course, this goes into the logistical aspects of producing a television show. And that question is, and other civilizations? 
be creative, but practical here too. Remember, class M planets will be often similar to many parts of Earth and with societies duplicating or intermixing almost any era in man's development. Jungle backgrounds exist on backlots, so what about primeval worlds or a pioneer Indian type culture? Lovely parkland exists locally, so do unusual, highly modern buildings. So do farms. <laughs> All right, I'll agree that with some ingenuity, there might be hundreds of choices. But what about the alien life on some of these worlds? Man-like creatures are the easiest, of course. Some photos in the casting books notwithstanding. <laughs> Minor modification of form, coloring, and hair distribution can be accomplished where necessary. But keep in mind at the same time that out of the collected best science fiction stories of all time, a surprising majority of them center on the more unique and often more thrilling variations in attitudes, values, morals, and intellectual powers and senses. But what go. about male pattern baldness in the future? No, but I think this, this is great because, you know, people equate, you know, science fiction as, as huge budgets, right? right? Because, oh, to do aliens and all these alien worlds, you need all this money and everything. But he's saying that, that that's, that's a fallacy. He's saying that's nice. But really, the great science fiction is about attitudes, morals, intellectual power. And so it's not all about the fit, the, the tropes of sci-fi, yeah. you know, the aliens and the, the you know, the, it's you the know, tropes. it's not. Yeah. The God, don't oh, you yeah. just want to take I, I keep as we're going through this. I, it's like I want to I want to take it to every Star Trek convention and read it the way Kirk, you know, reads the Declaration of Independence like in, in the oh. Omega Glory. Constitution. So the Constitution. Sorry. Sorry. It's like, no, just... I'm seriously reconsidering your uh, your combination. <laughs> oh, oh God damn it. It's almost license revoked. Where I am. Trexpert license revoked. <laughs> it's almost You've been demoted to guest star. Damn it. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. It's just that. Not only do I know what you're talking about, I want to bring on. I demand Captain Kirk right now to read to us why. There are always stories which can be done wholly aboard the starship. Damn right. Yes. A vessel of this size and complexity, along with a crew of 430 contrasting individuals, would have to be a pretty sterile place if it didn't contain many tales with considerable entertainment value. So I put to you, must stories always start aboard the USS Enterprise? No, no. We also like stories in which we pick up our main characters already on the surface of a planet with the essential elements of the story already going or assuming the preceding episode involved a highly interesting planet or civilization. We may stay on that world and do a second or even third new story there. This can help a given story considerably since it allows extra time and money to be put into sets planned for multiple use. They never this, did that. Never, <laughs> <laughs> never did. It never happened. But don't you wish it had? Yeah, I kind of do. Well, this is actually what, you know, it's funny what Enterprise ended up doing in, the, in their fourth season where they, in order to build better, you know, bigger sets and amortize their costs, they would have stories that would be like three-parters where they would build a set and then be able to use it all over multiple episodes. So he, again, way ahead of his time, even if they didn't really do it 
uh, uh, in, you know, in the original Star Trek because it was so episodic. But I would ask that I understand you may ask the concept of most landings taking place on planets approximating Earth Mars conditions. But will we never get to a planet where gravity or atmosphere is a problem? Yes, assuming the right story. <laughs> also, some story will undoubtedly take us outside our vessel into space for repairs or to investigate some strange object there. But generally, we will avoid space helmets and weightlessness since such tales would more legitimately concern Earth's present era of space travel. The aim of our format is, to, is drama and entertainment based on character rather than on details of technology and hardware discovery. Look, that kid in the back with the uh, Star Trek Three Rules t-shirt. Um, go, 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 go ahead. Uh, um, why do you guys hate Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. We'll, we'll move on. <laughs> the next question is, what is Earth like in Star Trek Century? Well, for one thing, We'll never take a story back there and therefore don't expect to get into subjects which would create great problems, technical and otherwise. The USS on our ship designation stands for United Spaceship, indicating without troublesome specifics that mankind has found some unity on Earth, perhaps at long last even peace. If you require a statement such as one that Earth cities of the future are splendidly planned with 50-mile parkland strips around them, fine. But television today simply will not let us go into details of Earth's politics of Star Trek century, for example, which socioeconomic system ultimately worked out best. But isn't but it you... interesting that they say we'll never go there? Yeah. But, you know, when, when I was working at one point on... I guess the second Star Trek three, like one of the things that they told us was like from the studio was like, yeah, there's gotta be a threat to earth. Right. Like, like there's gotta well, that, be a threat. That was what the studio, um, you know, mantra for all the Star Trek movies were, which is really funny because they said two things, which were completely conflicting. Earth always has to be in jeopardy and um, it should be like Wrath of Khan. Yeah, and the exactly. funny Earth thing was is, absolutely not in jeopardy. Rathacon, there was no jeopardy whatsoever to Earth. So yeah. it's like, you know, four, first contact, sure. You know, Star Trek, the motion picture. But mm -hmm. again, they wouldn't hold up Star Trek, the motion picture as an example they want to emulate. So right. it, it was such BS. Yeah. You know, this whole idea that Earth had to be in jeopardy. That was coming from, I forget who the guy who was the chairman of, it wasn't Sherry Lansing, it was... Um, Oh, God, I forget what his name was, but he was the chairman of the studio who was actually a bit of a Star Trek fan. And it, he, his mantra was you always had to have Earth. And it was before Bob Backish. I forget who the guy, but he, he would always say Earth has to be in jeopardy in a Star Trek movie. But then it was very easy to sort of pick that apart because he said, oh, only the good Star Trek movies are where Earth is in jeopardy. And then you go, wait, no, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, well, this is a question I'd like to ask. I'm a little unclear about technological devices of the future. Can we invent anything which sounds reasonable? For example, scooters that can run. 
Go ahead. Oh, God. <laughs> Stop with the scooters. I'm still in pain. Horrible pain. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Get this man an aspirin. <laughs> Simply think of something logical with some kind of science or projected science basis, generally best are projections of things we have now or which science is beginning to build now. For example, in the pilot, we had a hospital bed which continually monitored all the key bodily functions. And in fact, some advanced hospitals today are already doing part of this and working on future improvements. Yeah, that's kind of a half-assed response. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, next question is how much science fiction terminology do you want? And it talks about the less you use, the better. We limit complex terminology as much as possible. Use it only when necessary. Again, something that could have really benefited subsequent shows, which relied heavily on technobabble to tell their stories and was often uh, not only confusing, but but dull and dry. I like okay, this, now this, I like will this be note, though, that says important. The writer must know what he means when he uses science or projected science terminology. A scattergun confusion of meaningless phrases only detracts from believability. Well, clearly Gene Kuhn wrote this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for, for sure. And again, this is something else I would put on a postcard or, you know, to, to, to send uh, to the producers on other Star Trek series, because um, this is a very important lesson that wasn't always heeded. Right. I mean, so much so. And by the way, the one of the, when Star Trek used science fiction at its best, right? And avoided all the technobabble crap, right? Like technobabble became a thing in the later series that was, oh, it's a magical solution to all of our problems rather than, rather than a thing that um, where the, the science, where the technological challenge became part of the story, where it presented an obstacle, where it defined rules and the rules set up choices that defined what the drama was. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what Gene Kuhn is talking about here, because if you don't understand the concepts that you're bringing up and what they mean as a function of drama, right. then bringing them up in the first place is just goddamn irresponsible yeah. because you're never going to be able to deliver on the dramatic promise of the concept that you're introducing. Yep, yep. absolutely. Now, here's a, a, an important question. Well, what about uh, comedy and her humor? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. Even though I laughed, it's. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> well, now, now we know Gene didn't write this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, we hope Star Trek and its characters are human enough and varied enough to be capable of humor. We have no objection to believable characters whose presence and attitudes create legitimate opportunities for humor. What? Okay. Yeah. What? All right. The next, next question is very specific. The show asking about story outlines and formats. And it talks about the fact that um, production staff needs uh, a format for pre-planning of episodes, keeping production values high by getting multiple use of redress sets, effects, opticals, a few suggestions. F uh, feel free to send in or bring in rough outlines for discussion before nailing it down. We can often save the writer a lot of unnecessary work at this stage. Uh, B, uh, help our production people plan. Please indicate in outlines each change in set or location. And C, if in doubt about production practicality of a new planet, surface, alien life form, or some kind of future machinery, a general description or a to-be-determined later will suffice. Take advantage of our Star Trek staff and the help they can give. Good advice for writing on any show. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Give us crap we can use. Don't overdo it because if you overwrite too early, we're going to have to go back and change everything. And it's just a lot of extra work on our part. Thanks Don't for waste nothing. our time. Don't waste our time. <laughs> <laughs> what have been the big problem areas in past story and script submissions? Harlan Ellison. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it, <laughs> that would be the problem area. <laughs> it says uh, it has been in areas of believability. Many otherwise good writers tend to pepper their science fiction without of left field coincidences, unexplained and illogical actions, unmotivated character changes, things they would never dream of perpetuating or even on a, a perpetrating on even a kitty show script. Harlan Ellison. <laughs> uh, B, illogical situations. For example, it is swallowing quite a bit to believe a present-day naval cruiser like our Enterprise, or you could say like the Enterprise, would be full or of renegades and mutineers, Harlan Ellison, or that our <laughs> <laughs> or that our crew includes a World War II Navy lower deck of grammar school graduate enlisted men. Oh my God! So you mean like families on the Enterprise would never happen? Never. We want the exotic, the inexplicable, the terrifying, but not in the USS Enterprise. Its organization and mission, the ship and characters, are audiences tied to reality. Underlined. C intellectual rather than physical or emotional conflict. We've received some interesting analyses of possible alien civilizations, socioeconomic speculation, which seemed brilliant to us, but the characters were sitting and talking rather than feeling moving and doing. They also fail our gun smoke, kill dare, naked city rule. That is, would the basic story stripped of science fiction aspects make an entertaining episode for one of those shows? Don't laugh. Try it. Uh-huh. That feels raging, Coon. Yeah. Now it asks, so what about outrageous what about outrageous, outrageous purchases? <laughs> what about outright what purchases? About spending billions of dollars on one short story of by Harlan Ellison? Science fiction tales. <laughs> says, yeah, we're interested in the purchase of any SF story, which meets our needs, especially if Gene Kuhn writes it. That's and right. And we forget that he read the original. <laughs> but in the case of Arena, but to avoid duplication and conflict, the writing commitment should first be obtained. The negotiations must be approved by or conducted by Desilu's legal department. So in other words, you can't say, yeah, I got the rights, okay, I'm yeah, going to write it's this. Okay. It's, uh, it's fine. I talked to him and uh, he says we can have it. It's called gonna... Demon with a Glass Hand. It's yeah. fine. It's <laughs> We're going to come over with a few of our guys and it's going to be fine. Uh, don't worry, Terminator's not based on it. It's a totally original concept. Okay, so uh, Harlan Ellison, um, do, you have, <laughs> do you have technical advice directly available to the writer? one 800 555 Trek. Yes, if you are on Star Trek story or script assignment, call our office and we'll put you in touch with the right people. If you're on your own, well, we suggest you try to get help through your local NASA office, uh, university, or from the uh, aerospace research and development industry. Or some damn thing. Hello, is this the Des Moines office of NASA? I'm calling with I'm thinking of writing a Star Trek. Your local NASA office. <laughs> is this next what? one? Is, is, okay, so maybe maybe Gene did write this. And the last question, which is, uh, is my, my you never friend. see this. You never see this in the Bible today. Yeah. Ashley, if you would be so kind, are you people on LSD? No, LDS. Or LDS. <laughs> we tried, but we couldn't keep it lit. 
hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. And that is absolutely cheap. And we did not make that up. That is literally on page 31 of That's the right. Star Trek Bible. It's too good for us to have made it up. And now here's the page original cage bible to help him sell the series star trek is new kind of television science fiction with all the advantages of an anthology but none of the limitations how astronomers express it this way and then he goes on to explain all the possible stories um the number of stars in a universe is so infinite that if only one in a billion is a sun with planets and if only one in a billion of those planets is of earth size and composition the universe would still contain a lot of planets <laughs> and each of those there's only one of each one of us or something named Gene yeah. Rodbury. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. The, the rest of these pages are basically an earlier version of this Bible. Yeah, right. yeah. There's, a, there's a, you know, it's a information about the uh, about the ship, and and there's a bunch of uh, uh, you know technical details. Um, yeah. What what is science fiction? Um, yeah. What is brain? says we want new fresh stories but if you like to think in terms of adapting the 30 odd basic dramatic situations consider the ease with which stagecoach cane mutiny court martial shane king solomon's minds pygmalion boat jest or wet requiem for heavyweight could become an exciting science fiction story or in the case of battlestar galactica the towering inferno sf is the greatest untapped field of story and story adaptation available to television today. Science fiction is not gimmicking gadgetry, but rather like any other story is best when the main theme involves believable people in believable conflict. And it is best when it is served cold. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I love this. Forgive us if we seem to overdo these restatements of writing fundamentals. We know we're talking about things you already know, but we also have seen good writers frustrated by television's restrictions suddenly discover science fiction's incredible flexibility and latitude, rise to its challenge, to their inventiveness and creativity, and then approach their typewriters with the same disciplines of a sex star sailor on a leave approaching <laughs> his first bar at B-Girl. We know because we did it too. It was fun, but how the rewrite hurt. Wow. <laughs> Standing in a closet with a sailor. Some things never change. Wow. That's some sentence. Yeah, I that's think Gene, so funny. I think Gene wrote this part of the Bible. Yeah, I, I, I'd go along with that. But yeah. I, I think Gene, couldn't, Gene Kuhn could have as well. Yeah, maybe so. You know what's interesting? Hold on. Let me. Yes, I know lots of things. That There's are lots of things that are interesting. Um, the uh, I'm looking at. There are two versions of this sucker. Yeah, yeah that's what I was saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, yeah. The, so the, the last question about the LSD isn't in the other one. Yeah. No, it's not. Because the other one ends with, um, you called this the writer-director information guide. What about directors? To which the reply... <laughs> some, some of our best friends are directors. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> and, Do what you told. This is, this is the gene version. Because it says, what about comedy and or humor? If you mean comedy, uh, such as on television today, no. <laughs> or at least not at this time. But we certainly do hope Star Trek and his characters are human enough and varied enough to be capable of humor. If you compare the later Bible, which is the one we did, to the earlier Bible, it's very yep. clear that that is a Coon, DC, Fontana. Yep. Uh, versus, it was a rewrite versus this, which is more Gene Roddenberry based. 
Yep, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Yep, and maybe a little John D.F. Black in there too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I think, you know, John was more aligned philosophically as much as they didn't get along and disagreed with oh, Gene Roddenberry. This, hold on, this, uh, this paragraph, this is a Gene Roddenberry paragraph. Here we go. What is the role of female crew members aboard our vessel? You ready for this? Oh, my oh, God. Because remember on part one, yeah. we talked about how, um, you know, how nuanced uh, and, 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 and a progressive the response was. I'm very little, interested. A little less nuanced. During the, yeah. <laughs> during the ship's operations, they are treated as complete equals. At other times, like females. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Again, we would like to avoid dehumanizing our people and hope to retain some of that pleasant conflict which presently exists between the two genders. Marriage, love, and general hanky-panky. We'll assume and hope all will still exist. Oh. We will undoubtedly have romance aboard the vessel, but whether or not it becomes full stories or merely parts of stories is up to the writer and the intent entertainment value he finds in it. Next That's year, all Gene. Paramount Plus, Star Trek, hanky-panky. Wow, you know that is bulging. Wow, if you compare that paragraph to, to the one in the other Bible we read on part one, it's so clear the yeah. difference between Roddenberry and Kuhn, or maybe Kuhn and G DC Fontana. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, <laughs> that yeah. in a nutshell is Gene Roddenberry. It was the yeah. best of times, it was the worst of times. Fascinating message, Mark. <laughs> um none that i'm conscious of ashley so um wow what a great way to end a, a spectacular two-part episode i think this has enough uh enough uh to keep people going for two weeks absolutely I so i i certainly hope so and and you know if you haven't heard our previous episodes go back uh we we started with the cage the pitch document we continued with Next Generation with um, the New Testament. We we moved on to um, uh, Deep Space Nine, Revelations, Exodus with Voyager, Judges with Enterprise, and now we're back where it all began with Genesis. 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 <laughs> How can you not hear me with ears that big, Darren? So um, this was fun. It was really it was really great. <laughs> I'm sorry that we're out of Bibles. I don't know what we're going to do the rest right? of the season. <laughs> if only there were more Star Trek. No. Well, we do have our Trexperts holiday special to record. And we also have uh, our Star Trek three commentary coming up. That's so right. uh, we're going to, you're, you're keeping us busy. And I, I got to say guys out there and girls out there in, in uh, listener land, we're all really busy. This is killing us. Where we got so much, uh, we got so much to do for the podcast that none of us have the time. Time, time. We have no time. None. Um, but uh, um, and yet here we are because this entertains us. Here we are now. Entertain us. You're like Billy Joel. You're the entertainer. Damn right. Yeah, I was a little, a little more. I was a little Nirvana. Yeah. A little more critical oh, see, that's, than that's Billy Joel, but I, I, see that that's it's like that scene difference. in the Omega Glory when uh, Billy I'm Joel comes I'm out and I'm reads the Declaration of Independence. I'm right. referencing Billy Joel, and you're referencing Nirvana. It shows the difference uh, in ages between two of us. That's Not right. that, but of course, I'm a huge Nirvana fan. But I, I don't know why my mind went to Billy Joel first. Um, I know why. We know why. 
What's your favorite under pressure? What's your favorite Nirvana song? Mine isn't even from um uh never mind. I, I actually I like Car Shape Box from um in utero a lot. Uh, that's my favorite Nirvana song. What's your favorite Nirvana song? Uh, I mean it does in fact smell yeah. like teen, teen spirit. spirit. Yeah, okay, okay. Man, I mean, Nirvana it, was... it, it, it definitely it kind of wafts over and you go, Teen Spirit smells like it. Smells like a John Waters movie. Yeah, it, it's um, man, Nirvana was so freaking great. Yeah, that, yeah. yes, they were. Hey, fellow kids. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I want to I want to thank everyone for joining us for another spectacular two part episode of the Trexperts, and I especially want to thank uh, Bill Ritter for making it so great. Even still, we're still here over Zoom. Uh, he's doing such a, a terrific job. Of course, uh, Peter Holmstrom, our producer and our research associate, who's uh, helped us uh, uh, pick so many of these great clips that you've listened to. And of course, Zach Raggetts and Natalie Miscali. Thank you all. Um, and um, uh, we're looking forward uh, to being back next week with an all new episode of The Trexperts. Of course, you just can't get enough, which of course, you just uh, can't get enough. Uh, that's a totally a, different band. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> totally different if, podcast. Too. If, if you just can't get enough, then you want to listen to Trexpert's Briefing Room, an entirely different podcast uh, where we do audio commentaries for significant episodes in the Star Trek oeuvre. Um, but uh, until next Friday, on behalf of Darren, Ashley, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking and gloriously of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.